0: Good morning. It's my privilege today to introduce to you our guest speaker this morning, Jim Rose. Many of you know Jim and Phyllis Ann Rose. They sit just a few rows back, a few rows from the back. And before Jim stands up and presents us a message from God's Word in Psalm 73, let me just spend a few minutes in introducing Jim. It's a very interesting story to see how the Lord uses those who submit to him. Jim began his professional life as an engineer. He graduated from Georgia Tech University in 1958 with an engineering degree. Immediately thereafter, he served in the military as an officer in the United States Army, a lieutenant for two years, and after his, uh, his uh, time in the service, he became a, an aerospace engineer and worked on the Apollo project, on NASA's Apollo project, in the early 1960s. You remember the Apollo Project that brought uh, Americans to the moon. And as Jim was working for, uh, for the Apollo Project in, in those years, the Lord was, uh, was working on Jim, and, and uh, Jim concluded that the Lord wanted him to go into ministry as a missionary. So he and Phyllis Ann packed up and moved to Dallas, Texas, where Jim could study the original languages, Greek, Hebrew, and a theology. And so he enrolled in Dallas Theological Seminary, and uh, he served as a pastor of a church there in, uh, in Arlington, Texas, not far from Dallas. And during his time at the seminary, he graduated in 1967 with a Master's of Theology in New Testament Greek. And uh, since then, for more than 50 years... Jim has served as pastor of various churches around the nation. He's also served 19 years on the board of the seminary itself. Jim and Phyllis Ann are avid travelers, and they have taken and led more than 40 trips to the Holy Land, to Israel, and to the Mediterranean. They have been married over 66 years. They have two Two sons and twelve grandkids, and with that very brief introduction, it's my pleasure to uh, to pass the microphone, so to speak, to, uh, to to Jim Rose, and I look forward to his message from Psalm 73.
1: Do I have a great... Yes, I'm on. Yay. Thank you, Pastor Alex. I want to say uh, something about him. We uh, have been traveling a great deal, and our travel schedule slowed down a bit about a year ago, and we found ourselves coming to Fredericksburg Bible Church. We'd been here before, and we... We're delighted to find at that time, our first Sunday, uh, Mark Beal and his wife, who we served together at Northwest Bible Church in Dallas. Uh, But the uh, pastor and the preacher were unknown to us, and we went away delighted. God has given you a very good man and a most excellent teacher. We love every week, and uh, I've really enjoyed your series on John Alex that has been truly marvelous we've also enjoyed the music I love the, the hymns i particularly some that I haven't sung in a long time we don't want to lose these hymns the theology of them and what's in them is truly wonderful the other thing that I really enjoyed this morning my wife wanted to be sure we weren't late and so we left early and got here and we got here in time to hear Doug Gray on Tehillim, that is the Psalms, Psalm 119, an incredible psalm. And he is doing a marvelous job on that. And I hope if you're not there, you will be next week. And uh, that, that, that is a marvelous opportunity. We also deeply appreciate our prayer letter. Uh, that's helped us get to know some of the people in this congregation. And we do pray for you. And we appreciate your prayers for us. We are delighted today that uh, we have some of our family here. Mark and Nancy are here and our grandson Ryan and Alyssa, our granddaughter. Uh, Keith was going to be here, our oldest son, but Keith uh, had something come up. And so he and uh, his family were not able to come, but they're praying for us. Before we look into God's word, let's just pray again for a moment. Father, as we come to your word, we thank you what we heard about Psalm 119, that marvelous acrostic psalm that takes us into all really the areas of the spiritual life that we need to probe and live for your glory. Lord, we ask this morning now as we come to Psalm 73, in the words of Asaph, that we would understand where he was and where we are and where we need to be by your Holy Spirit through your scripture inspired, given for us to change us into those who glorify you with each day we live. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Psalm 73 is actually the first of 11 psalms that open the third book of the tahalim or the Psalms. The Psalm 73 is really the first of 11 that are written by Asaph. That is, he penned them. God's Holy Spirit inspired him to write them, and God communicated through him. If you know the Psalms, you'll know that Asaph actually uh, did one more Psalm. He actually did Psalm 50. And in Psalm 50, we have from the pen of Asaph something in the second book of Psalms. But the one we are going to be into this morning is the one that is, in a sense, his testimony. It's his life. He gives it rather late, in the scripture anyway, but it came at a time when he could do nothing else. It starts off in Psalm 1 with a wonderful statement it is really not just a statement it is it is his final conviction of where he is spiritually it reads this way psalms 1 truly god is good to israel to those who are pure in heart now that conviction came as i said late in his life but as we go on in this psalm we'll discover that He had had a problem, and so it may have come late in his life, but he needed to state it strongly and state it again. Actually, as we look at it, we realize that that statement, surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart, was a question in his life before he finally came to this. If you look at verse 13, you'll read this, "...surely in vain I have kept my heart pure and washed my hands in innocence." In other words, there came a time when it seemed worthless to be pure in heart and to wash my hands in innocence. That is, to do what you did earlier, confess our sins to God and live for Him. As we come to this, we realize that Asaph was one who, in Psalm 73, was, as Paul says it, not a new plant in his faith. He writes this in the afternoon... Of his life on earth. To know a little about him. We might turn. We won't do it. But you can. To 1 Chronicles chapter 16. And we'll discover that. He was very close to David the king. His ministry would be during David's reign. Which went from. uh, 1010 to. 970 BC. He would not only minister there. But he would in true sense. Be. The priest that David looked to on many occasions. In fact, in Psalm, in uh, 1 Chronicles 16, we discover that David appointed him as the chief Levitical priest who ministered in the presence of the Lord before the ark of the Lord. And so this man was not a lightweight spiritually. He was a man who was greatly respected, And yet, when we go to verse 2, we find that he was in deep trouble, and he confesses it readily. In verse 2, we read, after surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart, we read, but as for me, my feet came close to stumbling, my steps had almost slipped. And again, that happened late in his life. Now, what would cause a man of God who ministered in the very presence of God before probably the curtain with the ark behind it, but they could see the glow of his presence? What would cause him to stumble and to slip? We have to know a little bit about David's life to understand this. In my opinion, in studying this psalm, what caused Asaph to almost fall out? was what happened in David's kingdom. Uh, What happened in David's kingdom and in Asaph's day is very real for us in our day. As I was coming in and coming up, I heard a sister in this congregation, a lady say something about what happened in Washington last week, and she says, I just don't know what is happening. And that is what we feel. And that is what Asaph came to feel and what he experienced what happened to him is that he was ministering faithfully to the Lord and then toward the end of David's reign, there was an insurrection, a terrible insurrection, a bloody, violent insurrection. And that insurrection was led by one that David loved and it pampered, as a parent, probably too much. His name was Absalom. He was David's son If you go to 1 Samuel or 2 Samuel chapter 16 and go on, if you could start at 15 and go on through 19, you'll find that he led an insurrection against God and against David to take the government of Israel away from David and out from under God. And he had a lot of followers. You'd wonder how that could be. Well, we wonder how it is in our land. We have people today who want to move our nation toward what they call a reset. And that reset, as one of the leaders in the World Ride movement, Klaus Schwab. Klaus Schwab, by the way, is head of the World Economic Forum, that leader says that in this movement, we must be sure that we dilute and finally wipe out the Christian faith. And that is where we are. And that is what Asaph began to experience. For as this son of David put together his plotting and his maneuvering, finally he sprung this rebellion, this insurrection on his father. And David and his friends and followers had to get out of Dodge on the run or die. They were literally run out of town, out of Jerusalem, the city of God. If you know that account, he went over the Mount of Olives, and some of the Psalms pick this up, walking, crying as he went. He went down the Mount of Olives and went down to that valley that is the Jordan Valley called the Ereba. It is a wilderness like no other. From there he went over into non-Israeli land, into what is today Jordan, and up into the mountains. And this prophet, this priest, Asaph, had seen it all. And when Asaph saw this, he began to wonder. In fact, what he did, he locked on to the progression and the prosperity of evil men and evil women. Now, we need to understand that that is a dangerous thing to do. We have a lot going on in our country right now that could cause us to question as Asaph did. That starts when we stop focusing on the Lord God and start focusing on the progress of those who hate him. We must be careful about that. Asaph did that and he began to focus and that focus finally became a fascination, an obsession. He locked on and that is what caused him to begin to stumble and to find him not only on rough ground, but ground that was slippery with the slime of evil. In that situation, we find that two things came into his life. And they will come into our life if we do not keep our focus in the right place, and we'll find that place in this psalm. And I want to say to you, this is serious business. We find him saying this, he said, For I was envious of the arrogant, The Halali. The Halali are the braggadocious people who like to brag about all they're doing, no matter how bad it is. He said, I was envious of them. I saw the prosperity of the wicked. As he focused on this and locked into it and was obsessed with it, it moved him from being abhorred and shocked. It moved him to beginning to wonder, can they really get away with it? And if they can... Why can't we have some of it? Envy is that way. Envy is envying people that we really think are are bad people, bad folks, but wondering how do we get in on the goodies. And I want to say to you today, we travel a lot and speak a lot in churches, and there are churches that are swinging that way. I thank God for you who stay with the Word of God. He goes on to say that he saw the prosperity of the wicked. Then he begins to describe not just their prosperity, but their life scene. Not only do they live prosperously in life, and they advance, but when they die they have no pain in death. They die at home in their bed. Phyllis Ann and I ministered together in New York City a number of years, pastoring a church called Calvary Baptist. It was established in 1847, interesting church, great church, and one of our dear brothers that we've worked with for years is the new pastor, and you might pray for Calvary and pray for Abraham Joseph, who is the pastor. But while I was there, I I got to experience something that I'd never experienced living in Dallas, certainly, nor in Florida where I grew up, nor in Georgia where I went to school. And that was the progress of truly evil people. We had at Calvary a man who had been a made man in the Gambino family of the mafia, the mafioso. And I learned more about the mafia than I really wanted to know, actually working with this guy, he was a great guy, he's with the Lord now, and he came out, but he would tell me, he was a made man, and he would tell me, I remember we ordained him to the ministry, he worked with Chuck Colson in the ministry in, in prison, because he'd been in prison so many times, and I'll never forget the night that we ordained him, he came out crying, big huge guy, he, in fact he played pro football at one time, he weighed about 240, he was about 6'5", he came out and he's crying, and he's shaking the whole building with his cry. And I said, Ron, what is wrong? He says, this is one of the two most important nights of my life. And I said, well, what was the other one? He says, when I was a made man. (laughs) Well, I didn't really want to. He, He finally got over thinking that was important. But that's the kind of people that he is seeing here. He is seeing people who are truly evil and are prospering. And when they die, they die at home in their bed and they seem to get away with it. The next thing we see is, he says, they are not troubled as other men, nor are they plagued like mankind. In other words, they don't have to worry about debts. They don't have to worry about their children going to a dying public school system. They can send them to private instruction. They don't have to worry about braces on, I don't know if they had braces on their teeth in that time, but they didn't worry about those kind of things. No, they had the money to take care of it. They were not plagued by the things apparently he had been plagued by. But that was not the end of it. They were not only progressing and prosperous. They were outwardly not only evil. They weren't the average variety bad person. They were arrogantly bad. They were the epitome of bad. Verse 6 says, Therefore pride is their necklace the garment of violence covers them. In other words, they were proud of what they were doing and they showed it off. We were one night uh, eating out with my secretary and her husband. She was Chinese and he was too. Great couple. Committed to the Lord. And Phil and I are down in Chinatown on Orchid Street eating at our favorite Chinese restaurant. I always had Melanie and her husband to tell me what I was eating but it was good stuff. But we're there in the restaurant, and before we went in, it was the sun was just going down. All of a sudden, coming right down Orchid Street, there are a line of cars. There are two Mercedes sedans. In each one of them, there are four men. And then there came a stretch limo. And then after afterward, there were two more Mercedes sedans. And they went by. And I said to Melanie's husband, what is happening here? He says, those are the mafiadons. They're coming down to spread a little money around the old haunts down here in lower Manhattan. He says, they're showing their, their power. They're expressing their pride on what they do. And they're also threatening to say, if you oppose us, we'll take care of you. You see, they wore in their pride a garment of violence. Unfortunately, it seems like that violence and that attempt has moved south to Washington, and we are facing it. At any rate, this is what Asaph saw. He saw people led by Absalom who were absolutely rotten, and yet they seem to be getting away with it all. Not only that, he says, their eyes bulge with fatness. And when he says this... uh, By the way, I missed something over in 4. I wanted to say they have no pain in their death. Their body is fat. You may wonder what that means. And that's back in verse 4. Literally, the Hebrew text has said they had a fat front. In other words, to be fat in the Old Testament was somebody who did well. So many people were skinny because they were hungry. And these people did well. Back to the ones, their pride is their necklace. The garment of violence covers them. Their eyes bulge out with fatness. The imagination of their heart runs riot. They mock and wickedly speak of oppression. They speak from on high. These people under Absalom, if you study that passage, came in and they took over, as it were, Jerusalem. And they were violent in doing it. And when they got what they, Jerusalem had to offer, they wanted everything else. They wanted to, as it were, Pull in all of the desires of their heart. And it seemed like no one was going to stop them. They mock and they wickedly speak of oppression. In other words, they were, rather than asking people to support them, they were telling them, you'd better or we'll deal with you. The situation for him was one that he could not put together with the fact that this was the city of God and David was the anointed of God. He goes on to say that they not only are thinking they are like God, they speak from on high as if they are God, they are speaking against God. It says they have set their mouth against the heavens and their tongues parade through the earth. In other words, they speak against God and they are going to do what they want. They are now God's. I mentioned to you what the World Forum says. We must put aside, suppress Christianity. And these people were going to end God's rule altogether. The next thing we see is they had a following in verse 10. We read, Therefore his people returned to this place. His, I believe, speaks of one of the ideal men, uh, the ideal elite. Uh, it may be looking specifically at Absalom, but it looks at those men who had decided, "We will go against God. We'll take Jerusalem for ourselves. We'll get rid of all of the spirituality stuff, and we'll put everyone who doesn't go with us under us." That becomes very clear when you go on and see what they said. The people who follow them, uh, his people return to this place. That is, they come now into Jerusalem. These are people who had been outside because they had not followed David. Now they're back. And being in their back, the the waters of abundance, they are drunk by them. Some writers on this passage think that that means they buy the doctrines of these people under Absalom who are trying to have an insurrection to get rid of God and get rid of the king. It may mean that. I think it also means that they have come into Jerusalem and they are taking all of the abundance for themselves. They are going to eat it up and they are going to enjoy it. They will take the abundance and drink them down. Literally, the passage says, drink them up. They are against God. He finally says in verse 7, they say, how does God know? And is their knowledge with the Most High? In other words, you who've worshipped God, you're out of it. How does God know? What they're questioning is two things. The omniscience of God, what he knows, his all-knowingness, and the omnipotence of God, his all-powerfulness. He's the God who is most high. Maybe he's too high to see what we're doing. And if he did, he wouldn't care. Or secondly, if he sees what we're doing, then he can't do anything about it. And believe me, that is the thought of those who despise God and a turn against Him. And that was the thought then, and that is the thought now. When you read this material about the great reset that we are facing, the one thing you see is all people that don't go with them are to lose their freedom. And secondly, any thought of God is to be annihilated and dissolved. And that is what was happening here. Now... He ends up by saying this, Behold, these are the wicked, and always at ease. They have increased in wealth. And this this is his view of them. They're at ease, they're not bothered, they're progressing, and they're prosperous. And his thought is, where is God in all of this? The next thing we see is that he has finally moved from being envious to doubting God altogether. Verse 13 says, Surely in vain I have kept my heart pure and washed my hands in innocence, for I have been stricken all day long and chastened every morning. He's telling him that, you know, I was really against this. And I've tried to do everything I could, but, but I've been left stricken. There's nothing I can do. And, and, and I, I look at my life and I say, surely being a good guy, are faithful to God and being pure in morality and supporting the king that he is anointed, that all is empty. It's vain. There are people saying that right now in our country. Thank goodness you are not some of them. And we need to know that that is where we are and what do we do about it. Now, at this point, Asaph, a man who's well on in his faith, is basically moved from envy to doubting God. To doubting God and saying, Lord, I followed you, but all I see is that I'm stricken every morning. I'm sick to death in body and mind. But at this point, something happens. The psalm breaks at verse 14. 15 through the end is the second half. And it's the road back. And I want to say to you this morning, we need to know the road back. Some of you may be asking, why do things happen the way they have? Why did Monday happen the way it did? Why are we seeing people who are doing things that obviously are wrong, Why are we seeing crimes that are not prosecuted at all? Why are these things happening? His way back begins in 15, and it comes in four steps. And we want to know these steps. The first thing we see in step one is that he may be falling, he may be stumbling, he may be slipping, but he's not down. And we need to know that. If you go back to verse 1, you, say, you see that surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet came close to stumbling. My steps had almost slipped. There's an eternity between almost and actuality. And I want to say to you right now as we stop with this for a moment that Asaph was a man of God. Now, we are born anew into the kingdom of God. Asaph trusted God, and he was totally in God's hands. He was a saint, Old Testament-wise. And once a person trusts in God and becomes his own, God never lets them go. They will not fall. And we need to understand that about Asaph. This is not a passage that says, well, you know, if you really get sick and give up on God, even though you've trusted Him, you, you can go away from Him. You can't. Now, I want you to know that because it becomes very uncomfortable to try to. And he'll deal with that. But there is a stopping point for him. And that stopping point is, he said, I won't talk about this. If I do, it would betray the young generation. That is, those who are new plants in faith in Israel, in Judah. In other words, young people... That is in the faith, not in the age. I was talking to a brother last week in the church we were preaching in who's in his late 50s, and he just became a child of God. Well, he's a brand-new child. And the children of God that are truly children in their faith, they are not ready to struggle in the valley of doubt and disappointment. And so he says, I won't talk about that. In other words, I will keep it to myself but the fascinating thing is keeping it to himself he did not yet do the right thing with it verse sixteen is a fascinating verse i've I spent my life studying and uh, you know some of us are slow learners We're for forever going to school and i spent most of my life in school or teaching in school or seminary or churches or whatever uh... by the way alex i appreciate you mentioning the apollo program that made me realize how old I was. <laughs> Everything I worked on, I worked on the space suit. We had the suit. And uh, I worked on the water separator and a high... Sp- I won't get into that. But it's all all in museums now if you want to see it. And they're looking at me and say, you ought to be in there with it. You know how it is. But at any rate, this, this uh, situation for him is one where... He, he's going to keep something to himself. He's going to ponder it. And that's been my life, pondering things. My wife will tell you, when I have a... problem, she's shaking her head back there. Uh-huh. When I have a problem, and be it electronic, I'm going to figure it out. She says, why don't you call Mark? Mark is here. He, he knows what to do. No, I'll do it. Well, we can also do that with the Lord. This I don't understand why God is letting this happen, but I will figure it out. And we won't. Ever. Our thoughts are not His thoughts. There are going to be things we accept by faith because we don't know the end because we are not God. Thank goodness. And I believe through all eternity we will be continually learning and discovering wonderful things about God, but we'll never get to the end of it. Well, he was going to ponder it. He said, I pondered to understand. And he said, This was troublesome in my sight. The word trou- troublesome, ma'el, in Hebrew means to struggle and labor but to get nothing done. It's, it's to work to no good end. And he said, That's what it was like. But then at this point, he does the right thing. Don't miss verse 17. He said, I was, it was troublesome, it was troublesome or, or a toilsome with no end in my sight until I came into the sanctuary of God. The Mokadish Ha'el is the, as it were, the sanctuary of God. It means the holy place of El, of God. Mokadish Ha'el, it, it's, it's, and, and by the way, that's where he labored. I thought that was fascinating this particular writer, Asaph, was a Levitical priest whose ministry was in the presence of God. You know, that tells me something about the presence of God. You may be sitting here thinking, well, you know, my problem is I, he's going to go into the presence of God. He's getting to go into the sanctuary, the Ma'el. He, He's getting, getting Kadesh, he's getting to do this, but I can't do that. Oh, yeah, you can. The first thing we know is, you might look at 2 Corinthians 6.16. We won't turn there now, but there Paul says to the Corinthians, Do you not know that you are the temple of God? And he uses the word nios, which is the holy place and the holy of holies. In other words, you are where God dwells. You need to know that. We need to know that, Fredericksburg Bible, because we feel a part of this group that we are the temple of God. Ephesians chapter 2 and 3 deal with this as well. When we come together, God the Holy Spirit is in us in a special way. And He is here to speak to us through His Word, to inspire us to know His plan. And the first problem is when we don't show up, we're not with him in that special way. Now, you are always with him. You go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, and Paul says to the individuals of that church, and by the way, if there's any church that proves that eternal security is real, it was Corinth. You don't want to be a member of the church of Corinth. It was the last word in awfulness. And yet they were believers. And Paul says to him in great frustration in chapter 6 of First Corinthians, Do you not know that your body is the temple, of the naios of God, of the Holy Spirit? You are not your own. You were bought with a price. As bad as you are. Now you're not dead. You, you're people who seek God's Word. But what you want to always know is that individually you are with God. And, and he, he can speak to you and you can have what Asaph is going to receive by going to him and always each day going to his word and meditating on it on it and praying to him having that time don't mess that up stay with it the other thing is when you come together here hebrews says in 10:25 don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together as some do i want to tell you don't miss church When you miss church, you miss a special time when God is present with you. That's what Paul is telling them. Now, the other thing is you can come and not get anything out of it. As I said, this guy, I don't think Asaph would like me calling him this guy. Asaph, the Levitical priest, ministered there every day. He was in there ministering in the tent. They didn't have the temple yet. But he's there in the presence of God. But somehow he had forgotten where he was. In serving God, don't ever become so used to coming together to do it that you forget who you're meeting at it. God. You know, we can do that as pastors. And I know Alex knows that. I know it. You know, we, 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 you know, we just deal with God's presence and God's Word and it just becomes rude. Don't ever let that happen. Thankfully, you have a pastor who hasn't, but don't let it happen to you. When you come here, know that God is present. Suddenly, Asaph again realizes that. He says that things did not change until I came into the sanctuary of God, the Mishkadoshel. Then he said, I perceive therein. When he came in, To the presence of God, I knew it was the presence of God. Suddenly, he perceives something. This Hebrew word means to not only know it, but to understand what it's about. it, 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 It came together for him. And what he's going to understand in the presence of God is the end of those who despise God be it in Asus' day or our day, and say we're going to dissolve God and His religion and get rid of Him. They're not going to do that. Because he saw there Ahar. Ahar in Hebrew is an interesting word. It really means just here, but it, it really covers for the hereafter. What God showed him was, yes, I haven't moved yet, but I will move and I want to show you what I'm going to do and that will be evident and thereafter their hereafter there is a bottom line there is a last chapter for every person every nation and God writes that chapter he looks at this and suddenly he realizes first he realizes what God has done with them now they think they are prospering because they are denying God they are living the high life but it says surely you have set them. He immediately goes to a first person. Did you notice that? He's speaking directly to God. Surely, you set them in slippery places. to ca- Literally, to throw them down to roaring ruin is what the Hebrew word is. It is going to be a total wreck for those who despise God and do not follow Him. The next thing he says is how they are dis- destroyed In a moment, in just a a short time, suddenly, quickly, they are utterly swept away by sudden terrors. One of the things that it's uh, very helpful to do is study world history. And go back to, as far as you can go back, and you will find that every civilization and every nation that has decided God is not important follows this path. Now, I'm not saying... History is, as it were, repeating itself, that it's cyclical. It's not. History is linear. What is cyclical is evil. Evil is not creative. Satan, uh, let me give us some encouragement Satan is not creative. He does the same way, the same things again and again. We're seeing things happen in the world right now to try to bring a, a one world order. It's old socialism, whatever you want to call it, communism. It it hasn't changed a bit. Satan has no new playbook. It's just that he has people who think it's going to work, and it's never worked. I was reading an article a while back that was written by a movie producer in Hollywood, not a believer at all, but he had gone into communism, and he'd really gotten in it. And finally, he writes this article that was in one of the news magazine strange enough they printed it he said you know i realize that communism is something that will never work and the point is people keep trying it. satan is not creative and that is what he says but god works he destroys they follow that pattern he destroys he's going to keep destroying If you go to Isaiah, you'll find I've been working in Isaiah in my devotions. In 24 through 27, you have a section where Isaiah is talking about what God is finally going to do to the world. And he says in chapter 25, he says, I am going to destroy the world. I am going to level the world. I am going to take it out. And that's the final bottom line. Asaph Is fighting what Absalom thought he was going to do. And if you read the account of Absalom over there in 1 Samuel chapter 15 through about 19, you'll find that just as it says here, God did it. They were utterly swept away in terror in a moment. And it's worth looking at because God has not stopped doing that. He goes on in verse 20 to say, Like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when aroused, you will despise their form. In other words, they've been dreaming of this world that is never going to happen. And it's like God wakes up and says, oh yeah, you think? And it's all over in that moment. At this point... We have looked really at the first two steps. The first step is he wouldn't talk about it so he didn't discourage the new believers. The second step is, the key step is he brought his doubts and dragged them into the presence of God and said, God, what about this? And God will faithfully answer that for you. If you have questions today about the way God is treating you in your life, God is the Lord Jesus Christ. You go to the Father through Him who is your Savior and loves you and God loves you more than you can possibly imagine. And He will clear it up. The next thing we see is that, step three, is that in verse 21, He now knows what God is going to do to the wicked, but He has another problem. What God is going to do about His own condition. Verse 21, When my heart was embittered, and I was pierced within. Then I was senseless and ignorant like a beast before you. He, what he's saying is, I was just like them. I became ignorant, but I became bitter because I was on the losing side. I thought about trying to get on the winning side. I was bitter. I was pierced through. Literally, he says, I was pierced through my kidney. That, that sounds painful. Anyway, I was pierced through my kidney. And he says that this and I came like, became like a senseless, arrogant beast." If you read some of the material on what is trying to be accomplished now through the World Economic Forum and the reset, you'll see that the people holding it are like wild beasts. They see all of those... Under, it's an elitist movement. These are the people that say, well, eventually we're going to wipe out all fossil-based fuels and we're only going to have green fuel and a green situation and if you study that you'll know and I know as an engineer I remember enough to know that's impossible it's ridiculous and yet they're saying this and they're saying they're going to be uh, but for them they're still going to be fossil based, uh, based fuel because planes are not going to go on green energy so they're going to still have to fly to Dover, Switzerland so they can have their world meetings. No, that that isn't going to work. God is going to wake up and say, you think? It'll be over. And that is what he says. He says that he was just like them, though. He was a senseless person. He was ignorant and he was like a beast. But fortunately, he wasn't lost. Don't miss what comes next. And this is what he realized in the presence of God. Nevertheless, I am continually with you, and you have taken hold of my right hand. Get that? All this ranting, all this raving, trying to figure it out, doubting God, envying the evil, and doubting God and thinking maybe I ought to go with Him, he suddenly realizes God has never left me and he'll never leave you the promise the Lord Jesus made before he ascended into heaven to his apostles disciples and all of the other people there is I will never leave you or forsake you I don't care how bad our situation is right now he never will he says you were continually with me through all of that I can tell you I've been through in my life times like Asaph where I got discouraged Phyllis Ann had tried to lift me up it was like trying to lift you know a 2,000 ton brick but she stayed with it but what, what came out of when we come back to God is to realize Lord you are always there with me you're not going to let me go Not only is he with us, he says, you have taken hold of my right hand. With your counsel you will guide me and afterwards receive me to glory. I love this picture because you know, it's like something that happened to my wife and I years ago. I was pastoring in Clearwater, Florida and uh, we had one huge department store there, Bellis Hess. It's kind of like a Costco and and a uh, Walmart all in one. And my kids used to love to go there. And we'd go shop over there. And, but I had one son, and I'm a name I'm not going to give you to protect the guilty, uh, <laughs> that he would, uh, we'd go in and I'd, I'd take his hand because he would be pulling and trying to go. He wanted to go here, he wanted to go there. But I had his hand, but he's trying to break away. And the other son is saying, catch him, Dad, don't let him go, don't let him go. I remember one day in particular, he had really been a handful. I hadn't shopped at all. I'm just trying to keep him from, you know, going here and doing that, this and that. Finally, we fish, we go through the cash register, we come out and we step out on the the sidewalk in front of this huge store. And the road that led from all of the parking lot, was on this road and cars would come down and they'd turn and they'd speed down that road and when we stepped out suddenly this car goes by us and all of a sudden this little hand that had been pulling on me began to squeeze on me and try to hold me and i squeezed him back That's what God has done. You know, we pull, we get out there, and we're going to go do this. We get discouraged, we envious. and, and, And we pull, and God says, I haven't let go of your hand. And suddenly God brings something like he did into the life of Asaph in our life. And we squeezed back. And we know he'll always be there to hold our hand. He holds our hand, but it's not only that. Asa says, you will now be my counselor. You will guide me. And afterward, you will receive me to glory. You see, he not only sees there a hair, but his hereafter. And his hereafter is already working on earth. Whom have I in heaven but you? And beside you, I desire nothing on earth. What makes heaven heaven? Streets of gold. Stuff like that. I had a dear friend, Joe Bailey, that we used to minister with. Joe was one of my fathers in the faith, or uncles in the faith. And Joe wrote a lot of wonderful books. And one of the things he wrote is the book about heaven and how the real part of heaven is going to be that God is there and we can see our Lord Jesus on His throne and be with Him. And he says, streets of gold, he says, that's nothing. They'll be like asphalt here. You'll walk on it. What makes heaven heaven? God is there. But the amazing thing, he is here with you now. And that is what Aeth understood. And he understood when his life was over that God was going to receive into glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And beside you, I desire nothing on earth. He says, my flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you will perish You have destroyed all those who are unfaithful to you. But as for me, the nearness of God is my good. We're back to that. God is good. And I have made the Lord my Lord God my refuge. And I will tell of your works. We close with looking at this because he now has seen the ahar for him. He will serve the Lord and be held here on earth. But when it's through, God will welcome him up into glory. There are those who will perish. He's already talked about those. But in heaven, he will be with the desire of his heart. And that is the Lord God. And we're all going to be there unless the rapture takes place and God calls us out. And he's going to do that for some generation. I don't know if Asaph was thinking about that or not. He He says, my heart, my flesh, and my heart may fail. And that's what it says in the Hebrew text. Let me tell you, if he doesn't come back, there's no may about it. You know, when I first began to work with this passage many mango seasons ago, I used to say with him, well, I may fail, Christ may come back. Well, as I get older, I realize that if he doesn't come back soon, it's not may, my heart will fail. This body doesn't last forever. I'm finding that out. I think I can do all kinds of things, and my wife keeps telling me, you can't do that. <laughs> and I find out she's right. You might sometimes just feel your heart beat. And you know one day, that heart is going to stop. It's going to start, but stop, but you've got to know that what he says is, he says, my heart, my flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength. Literally, God is the savior, the rock of my heart. We say, I don't want a rock heart. That's not what it means. God is the living foundation under me that will change that heart into a new heart and a new body. And that we will not be heartless. We will have a new heart. Those who are trying to reset and follow everything but God, they think it's going to last forever. It's not, and they aren't either. Neither will we. But what he says is, know that if this heart does stop, we have a God that is going to give us a new one and a new body, because He's promised. You're a God year hereafter is heaven. The Lord Jesus Christ is the God that he's dealing with. He is the God, the uh, Adonai or Yahweh of the Old Testament. And he is the one that we follow and has saved us. And if we live in his presence, we will know what the ahar the year after is for us and in the here we will faithfully hold to him and serve him the rest of our days is he your rock is he the one you stand on is he the one you have in heaven and you do not desire anything on earth like him if he is you can rejoice Because no matter what happens here, God has the final say. Let's bow our heads. If you know Jesus Christ this morning, that is, you have put your faith in Him. You have trusted Him as the One who died for your sins. And because you've trusted Him, He has given you life eternal and you know that you're going to be going to heaven to His glory because of this, then continually live in His presence and you will always see your ahad, your hereafter and live for it. But if you've not trusted Christ this morning, you're just here and you happen to show up and we're delighted you're here, I want to say to you that all of these that are promising such great things that will make everybody happy as they say in the Great Reset, they're lying. They won't be happy. But there is a God who will make you eternally joyous. And that's different than happiness. You can trust in Him. He's the God that Asaph came to and finally says, there is nothing on earth that I want more than God. God. And in heaven, I have him. If you have not trusted in him this morning, as I close in prayer, I would ask that you would first look at your life and then you would realize that our Lord Jesus Christ came to this planet and died so that you could go and live with him and have eternal life. If you've never trusted in him, come into his presence this morning by saying simply, Lord Jesus I've been on the wrong side. I come to you now and trust you as my Savior. And in your presence, I know that I have now life eternal. I trust you as the Lord God who died for my sins. Amen. Let's stand now as we close.